I learned this little saying as a child. Get all you can. Can all you get. Sit on the lid and poison the rest. That captures a bit of the human condition, I think. And that is to acquire what you can. But once you acquire it, you make sure that you protect it. Our world was reminded again within the last week or so of something that came to the forefront for us just almost a year ago now, not long after I got here. We understand something of the need for security. You probably noticed, and those of you who are watching by television, you may not see it normally, but typically on a Sunday we have a uniformed police officer outside just as a point of reference to remind people that we take the security of our worshipers uh, in the highest level of seriousness. I, I want you to think through something of the implications of that. When we went to that practice about a year ago, I was contacted by someone and they wanted to talk about it. And their, their point to me was that we needed to make sure that we didn't abandon our trust in God by placing our trust in a security officer of some kind. And it was a protracted discussion. This individual pushed me at the point of saying it's just a lack of faith to uh, take preventative measures. And so somewhere in the midst of that, I interrupted him and I said, let me just uh, ask you, did you lock your vehicle before you came into this place? And he said, well, of course I did. I said, did you lock your house before you left? He said, yes. I said, why did you do that? He said, well, because people might break in and steal something. And I said, you see how difficult it is for us to draw the line sometime between trusting God and taking care of our stuff. Let me say it this way in the point of reference for our message today. Our need for security. I'm not just talking about when you come to church now. I'm talking about across the spectrum of your life. Our need for security, as, as smart as it is to address that in your life, that sets us up for a faith struggle in our daily lives. You see, the reality is that our lives, here's a principle I hope that you'll pick up from this message today, and that is that the life that pleases God is lived along the border between security and surrender. We as a people of God say that we place our trust in God, and well we should. But then in our everyday lives, we have built-in security measures that we default to, and I'll talk about a few of those as we go this morning. But that need for security and that move towards security puts us on a collision course between surrender and security. Recently, this week to be exact, a couple of different times, I was asked about how I like living in El Paso and if I was glad that we moved here. And so as I reflected on how much I liked living here and loved being here, uh, the question in both instances came up, so what do you like best or most about life in El Paso? Well, that's a hard question to answer because by definition it's looking for a single answer, and I have multiple points that make me really glad that we're here, one of which is this church and the people here. Uh, we love ministry here. We love the climate. We love, yeah, I mean, after all, I grew up in Odessa. 
Odessa doesn't have a mountain. We do. We win. But I was processing through that, those two discussions and then just kind of generally. One of my best answers is I just love border life. I love what we get in the mix of cultures. And not just on this side of the river and the other side of the river, but with what Fort Bliss brings in and what UTEP brings in and international business brings in. I was having a conversation Friday night with an individual who's not really part of our church, not really familiar with our church except watching the services on TV. And my point of reference there was, you know, the world comes to church here on Sunday morning. How, how could you? I love life on the border with First Baptist Church. I want to talk to you today from Scripture about the border life that we all live, the border between security and surrender. This takes us to the book of Genesis again. We'll be in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. But there's a, there's a statement that I want you to get a handle on today, not just today, but as we move forward into this little series that we're in, as we talk about fulfilling our vision as a church, as we talk about moving out into this community in fresh ways to share and connect people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ. One of the things that we must be uh, cognizant of on a regular basis is that many of the people to whom we seek to build bridges don't necessarily want what we have. And so we build a life. Actually, we don't build it at all, which is kind of the point of this message. God builds within us this life that is conspicuous to people. It's not the religious life. It's not the one that says, hey, you should go to church. This is the life that causes people around us to take note. It's the life of faith. And Manly Beasley, a great Southern Baptist evangelist of the previous generation, said this on a regular basis. I heard him personally say it several times. I heard my dad quote him a number of times. But relative to the life that pleases God, According to Hebrews eleven six, the life that is a life of faith, if we're going to please God at all, it's because we live by faith. Manly Beasley said this about that kind of life. A man who lives by faith is a man living on the edge of disaster because if God doesn't come through, that man is sunk. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 has already yielded three principles for us. We talked about them last week. The first one is that the life of faith always begins with God speaking. God said to Abram, we find that throughout Scripture. We find it true in our days. The first principle is God, I mean, the life of faith always begins with God speaking. The second principle that we looked at last week is that God meets you where you are. No matter where you are, he doesn't expect you to get cleaned up before you come to him. In the deepest, darkest hole in which you may be living, God finds you there. He always meets you where you are. The third principle that we saw last week is that God, when he meets you, always has relationship in mind. He's not interested in just getting a bunch of people who can check off boxes about their religious life. He wants a real, living, vibrant relationship with you. That puts us then in position for the one principle we see today. We're still in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The principle that we're going to find is this, that God positions us to provide opportunities to deepen our trust in him. Let me go back and let's read that so that we can get into that particular principle. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, let me just stop for a moment. 
and remind you that this is Abraham, or he will become known as Abraham. Right now, he's just his old self, and he's called Abram as we are introduced to him. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The principle is that God positions us to provide opportunities to deepen our trust in him. But before we get to a discussion about that principle itself and where we find it in this passage, I need to start off by giving you a couple of twin truths that go with that principle. Here's the first one. Now, buckle up. Let me just tell you. Buckle up, all right? Because this is the kind of truth that we find in Scripture that has a way of shaking the landscape of our lives as we have built them. The principle is, God is more interested in your growth than he is in your comfort. Now, I really fully expected about half of the people to say, well, if that's the case, then I'm out and just get up and leave the sermon today. I hope that you don't feel that way about it. But the truth of the matter is, this is one of those border life kind of things for us where we come up against that, that demarcation line in our lives between security and surrender. And we have, a, we have a hard time with the surrender part of that because our base nature, our sinful nature, is that we will be in control. That's, that's not a, in control is not a word that goes with surrender. God is more interested in your growth than he is in your comfort. The reason that's such shaky ground for us is because we kind of gravitate. I, I think it just is, it's, it's a natural slide for us if we're not paying attention. We gravitate towards this approach to our relationship with God, and especially I'll, t- I'll take prayer as an example of this. We tend to slip into a prayer life that approaches God. Well, let me say it this way. In those times when our world gets shaken, how do you pray? Whether it's a health issue for you or maybe a finance issue. By the way, how about that stock market in October this year? Maybe it's a relationship issue. Some kind of family dynamic maybe. Any number of things. Maybe it's a problem at your job. But when we find ourselves in those situations where the landscape is a little bit shaky, how do we tend to pray? Let me just take my several decades worth of ministry experience here plus my own personal life and let me see if I can translate all of those into a single prayer that captures all of that. When our world gets shaky, here's the prayer that we tend to pray. You ready? Help! Isn't that the sum total of the prayers that we tend to have? You know, God, I have this ingrown toenail, and it sure is uncomfortable, so would you take it away from me? That's a variation of Paul's thorn in the flesh prayer for those New Testament scholars out there. We find ourselves getting a diagnosis from a doctor that pushes us squarely out of control in our lives. And our prayer, not only for ourselves, but as others find themselves in that position, our prayer tends to be, God, we just, we just, you know, this is not a good situation. We just pray that you would heal them. 
And maybe the prayer is, you know, God, here I am again. I ran out of money long before I ran out of month, and I need help again. I'm not suggesting that those are prayers we should not pray. Please don't misunderstand that. I, I would say that the reality is the best prayer that you can pray is the one that reflects what your heart condition is at that moment. And this life has the way of putting us in positions where we are totally out of our element, totally out of control, totally needy. The best prayer you can pray is what you're feeling at that moment, but here's a truth for you that colors those kind of prayers. God is more concerned with our growth than he is with our comfort. And so when we find ourselves in those situations, instead of the prayer that says, God, deliver me from this or deliver my loved one from this, instead of that prayer as our go-to prayer, maybe we could benefit by praying this, God, where are you in this? You see, our theology would say to us, and Scripture clearly teaches us, that there's not a situation that you could go through where God is not there. And so when we find ourselves over the border into that land of non-security where we don't have that sense of control, maybe that's a good time for us to fall into a prayer that says, God, I don't know where you are in this, but I sure want to know where you are in this. So reveal yourself to me. Reveal what you can about your plan for me or my loved one in this. I haven't even really gotten to the message yet, but there's pretty good meat in that that I'm just talking about. So God is more interested in your growth than he is in your comfort. That sets up the second truth that I wanted to put with our principle for the day. Here's the second one. God will intentionally move you into situations that will enhance your growth. I've said it this way in some of our Wednesday night services, I think, and that is that sometimes our prayer is, God, get me out of this, when God essentially could say back to us, I had to work 14 miracles to get you into that position. But, but our, when, our, when our perspective gets just a little askew, and we start looking for the comfort in life that all of us are looking for and the security that comes with that, then we forget that God is trying to grow us. And so I think there are those occasions where God has to move some things to get us in position. Sometimes he moves us. Here's another way to say that. God knows that sometimes we get in situations and positions in our life, spiritually and otherwise, where he can't teach us what we need to know there. And so he's got to get us into a teachable moment. I had a friend, have a friend. He's, he's not a used-to-be friend. He's still a friend of mine. He just doesn't live here where I live. But his name is Jim. Jim owns his own company, and they've gone uh, international in what they do. And so uh, he's been a pilot since he was 15 years old. I mean, he used to fly people who ran farms way down deep in Mexico. He used to fly them from the Rio Grande Valley down there. And uh, Jim's about my age, and so we've been friends. Our kids are friends. Teresa and his wife are friends. Uh, Jim's been more like a brother to me through the years than anything. And Jim is also a, a pilot. And so occasionally he would take me flying with him, and I kind of got the bug, you know, uh, about flying. I, I love doing it. I don't love doing it commercially. I'll do that if I need to, but 
uh, it's not that I'm afraid. I just, you know, it's the cattle car approach to moving around that's not all that pleasant for me. So occasionally Jim would say, hey, you want to go flying? Now, I knew what he meant by that. That meant I was going to get to sit up in the front seat with him. It's a better view from the front seat of a plane than it is from one of the side seats. And so Jim would take me up, and he would have to get in some hours, or maybe we'd be flying to do some things uh, for either church or his business. And uh, I I just got to where I love flying. I kind of caught the bug about flying. And he said, "Uh, so you want to learn how? I said, yeah. He He said, instead of just going straight to flight school, let me suggest that you do this. He said, go get a copy of Microsoft Flight Simulator software. This was a number of years ago. I don't know if it's still any good or not. I don't have Microsoft product, uh, um, excuse me, stock. So I'm not suggesting you go buy it. I'm just telling you that's what he told me. Because he said he would use that product whenever he was going to be flying to a location, an airport he had never landed in. And he said it was so precise that he could use that to shoot landings and that kind of stuff and be prepared so that when he went in a real plane, it was easier for him. Good enough for him, good enough for me. So I bought the program. I started flying. I was an incredible pilot. I walked away from every crash, and there were a bunch of them. (laughs) And so Jim told me, "You'll, you'll learn a little bit about it. He said, now you'll need to read the flight manuals that come with that program. I thought, who needs that? I'll just get on them. I'll just fly. And you know what? It was pretty fun. But you know, one night, uh, one day, I was with him in the plane, and I was telling him that I'd been doing that. He said, well, are you any good? I said, well, I, I probably, no. <laughs> he said, you ready to fly? I said, yeah. He said, okay, you got the controls. And took, he just did his hands like that. He wouldn't let me land it. I asked him if I could land it, and he wouldn't let me do that. That's a lot more important, apparently, than just flying around up in the sky. You know what Jim knew and I figured out? I could be the world's best Microsoft Flight Simulator pilot sitting in my office at the house. It wasn't playing a game. It, It was really flying. But you get behind the controls of a real plane, and the stakes are higher. And the lessons are more important. And you learn things there that you never could learn sitting in an office at your house. God knows that about us, by the way. God knows that some of the lessons that we need in our own faith development are not going to be possible in a particular situation where we find ourselves, where we have found comfort. And so occasionally God will say to us, get up and move. Now, I'm not suggesting that he's going to tell you to do that physically, although he might. He did that with me and Teresa about a year and a half ago. But God regularly does that in our spirit, whether it's our emotional, physical, intellectual health, certainly in our spiritual health. From time to time, God steps in and he says, you're not going to be able to learn what I want you to learn in that situation, so here's something new for you. And when he does that, it's life on the border between security and surrender for us, and it's a real fight. That brings me, in case you were wondering if I was going to get to the text, we're back to the text, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. And now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And we'll get to verses 2 and 3 later. 
But we need to deal with what we find in this particular place. The principle is that God positions us so that our faith grows. The life that pleases God is a life of faith. Abraham in in Hebrews chapter 11 gets more space than anybody else. He's called the father of the faithful. And in this particular snapshot of his life, God steps in and God essentially says what I just finished saying, which is you can't learn what you need to learn here. So now you're going to have to get up and go somewhere else. The word he uses there, that first part of chapter 12, where God is speaking is a word that means to leave. It almost carries the, the, the thrust of abandon. God is saying to Abram, there are lessons for you. I have a plan for you, but you're going to have to leave in order to get there. Now, we'll find out as we get into verses 2 and 3 next week that God never calls you away from something, but that he's also calling you to something. But let's look at what he calls him away from in the time we have left He says three different things. This leaving is a progression. It is a physical thing for him. It becomes more than that for him, though, and it also is the same for us. God first says, leave your country. That is, leave that area in which you have found your home. The confines of your country provide a certain level of security. I figured that out the first time I really went out of the country. I'd been to Mexico a number of times growing up in Odessa and other trips our family had made kind of back and forth across the border. But the first time I ever really got away from the United States and the border with Mexico was about 10 years ago when I took a trip to Turkey. And as we were flying in, it had been, we'd been on the plane for 16 days, it felt like. And it was just, had been, I was so ready to get off of the plane. And we began to fly in over that city of Istanbul. And it's very Mediterranean looking from the air. And it was a great sight to see. And I thought, this is going to be an incredible thing. And we stepped off of the plane, and they immediately began to usher us towards that place where tours go so that we could get all of our documentation right and our passport stamped and all of those kind of things. And as we were heading that way, I I started passing some of these um, officers or military people or whoever they were standing with machine guns. And I thought to myself, this is not Dallas. And all of a sudden, I became very acutely aware that I was not in my place of security. You know, as an American citizen, we have a lot of security on our side of the borders, things that we often take for granted. Most of you know that. Most of you traveled extensively, whether with the military or otherwise, you know that there's no place like home. And God says to Abram, you're going to have to leave your country. It's a security lesson for him. God is saying to him in no uncertain terms that he's going to have to abandon the familiar security of a homeland. And then God says to him the next step, leave your kindred. The word here means clan. We might think of tribe, perhaps. This now is not just a security departure. This now begins to hit at his identity. There's something about being part of a group of people. It's a cultural thing. Part of my answer to those who asked me this week what what I loved about uh, living in El Paso the most gravitated towards my love for the culture, border life itself. 
after 20 years in South Texas along the border, we have a chance to come back to West Texas where it's much better. But Abram, and sometimes we, have a security and an identity that comes from those people with whom we associate. Our clan, if you will, our tribe, our people. We know who we are. When my son moved from South Texas, where he had lived most of his life, to East Texas, every once in a while I would talk to him on the phone. I would say, how's it going? He said, Dad, these people are weird. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, all they want to do is go hunting. I said, well, that doesn't make you weird. It just makes them different because you didn't grow up in a culture where that's what you do all the time. And so he settled into that area out there. By the way, he's the chef. He's coming for Thanksgiving. It's going to be a great Thanksgiving at our house. But you see, when we tie into our culture in that clan, if you will, our tribe, there's an identity thing that we don't have to worry about. We, we know who we are. We know who they are. We fit in together. That's one of the reasons we can do life together in those kind of circumstances. But to become an outsider, which is what God is saying to Abram, you're going to have to leave them, which means you're going to have to go somewhere else, and you will be the outsider. And as an outsider, if you don't fit in with them, who are you, really? God is asking something of Abram that's tough. But it hadn't gotten really tough yet, but it does with the third one. He also says, leave your father's house. This is the critical level of leave your security and leave your identity behind. In their culture, where the patriarch was the guy, and we all draw our identity and our security from the stability of the patriarch, God is saying to Abram, you need to leave that too. And go to where I'm going to tell you to go. By the way, how's that for security? Just launch out. I'll tell you when you get there. Abraham may well have said, you're asking me to give up everything. You're stripping away every shred of my identity and security. Here's a burning question that I have. It's always good when you do Bible study ask the question, okay, so what? So there's a story about a guy who lived thousand years ago, a couple of thousand years ago. Uh, so what? Why, what's the difference to me? Here, here's a good answer for you in that. Why, why is this important? Well, let me just throw another question out there. Why would God do this to him? Why would God say to Abram, you're going to have to leave everything about who you have been and who you are and where your security is, and you need to go somewhere else, and I'll tell you when you get there. Why would God do that? Now, the easy answer is to say, well, God did that so he could bless him. But we all realize that God could have blessed him right there where he was. He didn't have to go and leave all that stuff behind. But God told him to leave all that stuff behind. I would suggest to you that the reason God did that, at least part of the reason, was because God could not do with Abram there what he needed to. There were lessons that Abram needed to learn that he would never learn as long as he held on to his security and his identity. And so God systematically moved him into a position, like Manly Beasley said, where if God did not come through for him, he was sunk. I'm going to suggest to you that God still operates that way with us, 
The reality is you can't even come to know Jesus as your Savior unless you experience that border between security and surrender. Because Jesus said, if you come to me, you have to give up everything. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus moves us into positions where he can teach us to trust him. That's the life. That's so as I close, let me just give you a couple of questions to consider. Who are you? How do you form your identity? You know, we do that in a lot of different ways. We may be at a place in our lives where we do that through our profession. And so we pour ourselves into this particular profession. And so that, that's, that we build our identity into that. It may be that our education is what we use for that. And so we go get all degreed up, have more degrees than a thermometer. And we think that somehow that makes us somebody in particular. Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe it's your relationships, your family. All of us seek an identity somewhere. And God says to Abram, just like he says to us, you have to leave all that behind because your identity needs to be wrapped up in who Jesus Christ is. That's the life of faith. Not just who are you, but let me just add a little, little bit of a zinger into that. Do you really need Jesus Christ in order to be who you are? That identity that you've carved out for yourself, if Jesus were not part of that, would it change that identity at all? It's so easy for us to just kind of slip into a religious approach and we take God and we just kind of set him on a shelf and say, I'll take you out when I need you for those help prayers. But usually he's part of the landscape of our life but not central to it. Could you be who you are if Jesus wasn't there? And what are the security measures you've built into your life? Big bank account? people, you know, the, the networking part. All of those things are important in life. I'm not suggesting they're not. I'm just saying when we allow those things to become the most important thing in our lives, then we live like we don't really need God. And God systematically puts Abram into a position where if God doesn't come through, he's sunk. I suggest to you that is the life of faith. And it always starts with God speaking. What is he saying to you today? What place does God have in your life? This world doesn't need another religion. It doesn't need another religious sales pitch. It doesn't need some kind of religious um, motivational speaker. People need Jesus Christ. And they can't get to Jesus Christ until they come to the end of themselves, to that borderline between building a life of security and a life of surrender. Our job is to model that life for them. And so we live the border life all the time. Surrender or personally guaranteed, which is never guaranteed, security. Where is it with you today? Where's Jesus in your life today? Let's pray. And as we pray, the invitation to you is that you put Jesus into the driver's seat that the security that you have in your life and the identity that you fashion is actually one that are tied to him 
He builds the security system. He gives you the identity. The life of faith is the one that says, I surrender all. It's not about what I can do. As the old hymn writer said, nothing in my hand I bring, only to your cross I cling. The life of faith is a life of surrender. And the amazing thing is that when you surrender, you get an identity and a security beyond what you could ever build for yourself. If you're here today and you don't have that, this invitation is for you to respond to the invitation. So, Father, as we come now, we pray that you would use this time in our hearts, challenge us, change us, grow us, help us to see the position that you're putting us in and help us to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you to stand as we sing, you come.